I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. All right. Um, well, this is going to be really interesting. Um, we are sitting down with Guy Standing. Uh, Guy Standing is a labor economist and a professoral research associate at SOAS University of London. And uh, you're also the founder and honorary co-president of the Basic Income Earth Network, Bien, uh, which is a big thing that we're, we're really interested in talking to you about today, uh, the notion of universal basic income. Um, but before we, we kind of dive into it, please give us a, a little bit of an introduction yourself and uh, give our audience uh, a bit of insight into how you ended up doing the work that you do, which you, it seems you've been doing for quite a long time. Yeah, I, uh, thank you very much for that introduction. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'm an economist with a PhD from University of Cambridge, and for many years I worked in the United Nations. Uh, particularly in the International Labour Organization. And I was director of the technical work in Eastern Europe in the 1990s, working in Russia and Ukraine. So I particularly relate to what's going on in that disgusting war. And I also had the privilege of uh, being director of research for Nelson Mandela's Labour Market Commission in the mid-1990s. Uh, and met the great man and enjoyed that work in particular. But um, you mentioned that we established Bien, with Basic Income Earth Network, which we established originally uh, as the Basic Income European Network back mm. in 1986, when I oh. was barely out of shorts, as you can imagine. <laughs> and uh, a group of young, radical economists and philosophers and activists and we we set it up and i came up with a name because it sounded it sounded like french you know well-being well bien etc and we've just we've had 20 international congresses our last one was in glasgow we had 1900 uh, plus uh, participants and we've expanded all over the world and we've got thousands of members and we've got huge support and I've been very privileged since I left the United Nations to have done a series of basic income pilots in various parts mm. of the world. And maybe we'll come back to talk about that. But I'm probably, apart from my work on basic income, I'm probably best known for the book I've written called The Precariat, The New mm -hmm. Dangerous Class, which was first published in early 2011. And since then, it has been translated into 24 languages, which, which is something that doesn't happen very often to a boring economist. You know, <laughs> it, 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 you don't expect that, but it's, it's changed my life Ooh. because uh, people all over the world who've read the book and heard about it have been writing to me ever since. And I've just heard today, uh, getting back from visiting Rotterdam to give a talk last night, that the Chinese edition, or one of the Chinese editions, is about to be reprinted because Ooh. it's been selling so much in, in China, which I never expected. Right. That, that has, we'll come back to it, I hope, during the conversation, because it's very relevant to your interest in basic income. Yeah. So that's a nutshell of, of me and the background, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. I'm, I'm curious, I wanted to jump in and ask right away about the so the reason i'm curious what why you think the precariat resonates with so many people i was um i was watching your 
your TED talk with my mom yesterday. And the whole time she can't agree with anybody, but the whole time she was like nodding her head and going, a hundred percent. That's exactly <laughs> right. And I, I'm curious, what is it about the concept of the precariat? And if you can explain that to our listeners, why does it resonate with so many people? Well, I think I, if I may, I'll just go give a little bit of background. I was director of labor market research for some years in the International Labor Organization. And I was convinced that what we call the neoliberal economics revolution associated with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and the Chicago School of, of Law and Economics, as it's called, was going to create a, a situation of growing inequalities growing economic insecurities and a lead to what I've been describing in, in my books as a system of rentier capitalism. Rentier capitalism means that more and more of the income and the wealth is flowing to the owners, not of cats, but of, or is that a cat or a dog? He looks like but a more rat. And more of the income and wealth is flowing to the owners of property, physical mm. property, financial property, and most of all, intellectual property through patents, copyright, and so on. And less and less is going to those who perform labor. And that's, that's associated with what we economists call the changing functional distribution of income, the share going to capital and the share going to labor. Share mm. going to capital has gone up, the share going to labor has gone down. And in that context, a new global class structure has taken shape. And that global class structure has a plutocracy at the top, the top, the billionaires and so on, global citizens who exert incredible power and uh, an influence. We know their names. We wish we didn't often. Below them is an elite serving their interests. They're rentiers. They get most of their income when you and I sleep. And they've done very well. Well, in financial crises of 2008 and in the pandemic of COVID, they've done well everywhere, okay? Below those two groups is what I call a salariat, a diminishing proportion of the adult population who have secure employment, pensions, paid maternity leave, paid leave, paid this, paid that. And a lot of them come to my talks on the precariat, and quite often they'll come at the end and say, I'd like to buy a couple of your books. And I, I might say, why? And they say, well, I want them for my son and daughter because they're not going to be entering the salariat. They're entering the precariat. Mm. Below the salariat is the old proletariat, the people who used to work in the factories of Henry Ford and the steel industry and so on, the classic working class blokes, if you like, and that's shrinking everywhere. And more and more of them are being pushed down into the precariat. Now, to come to the precariat, millions and millions of people are now living lives of chronic insecurity. And it's, it's an important aspect that they have insecure labor relations. They have to do a lot of work for labor that doesn't get counted in statistics, but they have to do it. You don't see it, but they have to do it. And they know what I mean. And they don't have an occupational narrative to give to their lives. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's a fundamental reality. But they also only have money incomes, money incomes which are falling in real terms and becoming more and more volatile. But most importantly, if you're in the precariat, you are losing the rights of a citizen. You're losing social rights. You're losing cultural rights. You're losing economic rights. And you're losing political rights in the sense that you don't feel the politicians of the time are articulating a, an agenda that relates to your set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the most important thing, and I hear that you your podcasts go out to people with disabilities and Ooh. chronic illnesses, so they will know what, I'm, what I mean when I say what I'm about to say. Most of all, they, they feel like supplicants. They feel like beggars. They have to ask for favors. They have mm. to ask for discretionary judgments. They have to hope that a decision will go in their favor. Mm. 
but often it doesn't. And they know that as a, a reality. So they suffer from what I call a precariatized mind. They don't know quite what is the best thing to be doing with their time at any particular time. So the, the, this leads to a mental stress, a mental incapacity to be rational often. And this is why we are suffering from a pandemic of stress. Mm. Now, about a third of the population are in the precariat. It's a growing percentage. Wow. And in the United States or Japan or in China or in Britain or where I am in, in Switzerland, it's growing everywhere. Mm. And when you ask what makes people relate to that is that those numbers are rising and people identify with being in the precariat. Mm -hmm. And they that they are angry and they have every right to be angry because no one's listening. Mm -hmm. But I'll end this this sort of statement by relating a little narrative that might amuse you or make you angry, depending on your your mood. <laughs> In early 2016, 2016, I received uh, an email inviting me to go to address the Bilderberg group. I thought it was a joke, so I took <laughs> no notice. And several days later, as I was in the kitchen, I received a telephone call and said, why haven't you responded to our invitation? So I said, I thought it was a lefty friend of mine pulling my leg because the Bilderberg group is the right-wing elitist group set up in 1954, with all the richest right-wing people, many Americans, but also people from other countries. And they meet each year. And they invited me. And I consulted friends in various countries, including the US. And every single one of them said, Guy, you've got to accept. Accept. <laughs> so imagine what it felt like. I was VIP treatment taken to <laughs> To Dresden in the in lion's a huge den. German <laughs> castle, <laughs> yeah. and going with with military guards to this castle, where I was asked to talk about the precariat and and basic income. <laughs> so I stood up, and the chair of my session, who was the chief executive of Deutsche Bank, the biggest German bank, and he said, "Well, now we have something completely different." that it's been leaked to the press and it's about the precariat. So everybody has been able to identify who our speaker is, but he's boxing out of the left corner. You know, he's oh, wow. boxing out of the left corner. Oh, wow. And I said, I stood up and I said, well, thanks very much for the introduction. And I described the precariat and the class structure and imagine what it felt like literally in the front row, right in front of me, Three meters in front was Henry Kissinger. <laughs> now, when I was a student, Henry Kissinger was public enemy number one. <laughs> and I felt over you know, the three days that I was interacting with him, and there was Peter Thiel, there was the head of Google, there was the head of the, the CIA, there was three prime ministers. It was crazy, all right, for me. Imagine what it was like, right? And I'm talking about the precariat. Now, what was strange is that I expected them to all rush for the bar, mm -hmm. you know, get, get the hell out of there. Instead of which, they all started putting up their, their nameplates for questions. And Lindsey Graham, who you may know is a close friend of uh, the esteemed Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, um, Lindsey Graham. <laughs> He asked to have breakfast with me. So I had breakfast with Lindsey Graham the following day. And he said, this, this sounds so correct. And I said, well, from your politics, that sounds very strange to me, but let's have enjoy our breakfast. And it's interesting that when you explain it and the politics that go with it, people understand. And I warned in that meeting, which was in April, I said, don't be surprised if Donald Trump wins the presidential election and don't be surprised if Brexit happens in Britain because 
part of the precariat are so angry and this lesser educated part is being told by the likes of Donald Trump, vote for me because I will bring back yesterday. Yeah. And yesterday was great. We were great. Bring back, etc. Same with Boris Johnson in Britain, Orban in Hungary, various. Putin does the same. Mm. And all of these people play on fear and insecurity. But there's another part of the precariat who are the young, educated who when their parents and teachers told them to go to university, they said, you will have a future. And they come out without a future. Mm -hmm. They come out disillusioned, angry, and looking for a new, what I've called a politics of paradise, a new progressive politics. And they don't see it in the spectrum. They don't see it in Biden or in Starmer in Britain or Macron in France, or they're looking for a new progressive politics, a progressive politics that is ecologically driven, that is socially redistributive, that restores rights to people with disabilities and people who are in the precariat. They're looking for that. And I think this is the main reason why I've been invited to give over 800 presentations in 40 countries yeah. on the precariat because yeah. it's a global phenomenon. And, and I think more people should be focusing on articulating a politics geared to the precariat. So that's, that's basically the narrative there. So, so guy, what wow. is, what is, so I, I, again, I also listened to your, uh, to, to the, uh, to the Ted talk there. And I thought that I'm, I'm, I really appreciate the, the, the context there, and especially in terms of going to this conference and speaking to these people. And I'm, I'm quite impressed that you were, that you were, that you were invited and people seem to listen. That why, seems like, can that I seems just like ask, a, why do you think you were invited? Like what, like, what do you, what do you think they, what do you think was the benefit for them to have you there to, to, to break down for them what the precariat is and well, what we're looking at? Uh, I've also been invited to speak on three years in Davos, the World Economic Forum of all the uh, corporate elite and so on. And I had a debate with Larry Fink, who is head of BlackRock, you know, the biggest asset manager in the world. Three of executives are now Biden, top Biden appointees and so on. $10 and I had a debate with them. Well. And my interpretation, and I've been invited to Silicon Valley and so on, not because I'm anything, but the subject is, is, is important. And the thing... The answer I would give to your question is, I think they realize that the system is so rigged mm. that it's unstable. And there's nothing they want more than a stable economic system from which they can make their profits. And one very, very wealthy billionaire, one of the wealthiest billionaire was in the audience when I was in San Francisco once. And he stood up halfway through my talk. And I thought he was coming to biff me. You know, <laughs> he came down the aisle and he said, are you saying the economy is rigged in our favor? Wow. And I said, yeah, roughly. <laughs> and he said, I'll tell you what, I fully agree with you. And it's, it's unstable. It won't, it can't continue like this. Wow. Keep now, my economy's so, name. In other words, the intelligent fuck? ones yeah. there I've realized that if you have a chronically unequal society and an unequal system that rewards a tiny percentage and penalizes and turns ordinary people into vulnerable members of the precariat, you are in for trouble. Mm. And it I could be right wing trouble with the Trump and we've just seen Roe versus Wade. All of those things could be happening authoritarian developments, or we need a new progressive agenda that mobilizes people and makes people excited and makes people passionate about mm. creating a better society. Mm. And we're in, we're in a sort of interregnum, a period where the old politics are dead and there's, it's not yet emerging. We haven't quite found in the a new good way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I think that it's, I think that it's plain as day to see, which is why so many of the people that you would peg as the type of person that would vehemently disagree with you also see it. 
And, and I say that as a person who is, I, I wouldn't go as far to call myself a free market capitalist through and through, but I, 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 I am, I am certainly in that, in that, uh, atmosphere. And I think regulation plays a really important role. And I see it plain as day that there is a, that there is a corruption and a brokenness in the way that, in the way that wealth flows to people. Um, I'm interested in, in, it sounds like, and I know that this is an, a way oversimplification, that is basic income the solution to the precariat, or is it a part of the solution? Mm. Um, is it one of many steps that we can take to uh, ameliorate the problem of this growing class of, uh, of, of perpetually sh- mentally stressed people that don't know how to use their time, how to be productive um, and live a, a f- fulfilled life, basically? Well, first of all, let me say, we don't have a free market economy. We have the most unfree market economy ever created. It's one of the great lies told by the apologists on the right that this is the free market. I promise you as an economist, this is the most unfree market system you could imagine. More and more of the income flows to the owners of intellectual property rights. Intellectual property rights give a monopoly income to the owners of patents or copyrights or industrial brands for 20 years, or in the the case of copyright, for the whole of their life plus 70 years. Mm. Okay? Now, that gives a monopoly. In other words, nobody can compete with the person who owns the patent. Right? That's not a free market. A free market must allow entry and exit and competition. And what's been happening is you are having a process, particularly in the big tech, pharmaceuticals, finance, the, the high value added industries, a conglomeration. And what's happening is that the big, the big boys are buying up companies like confetti mm-hmm. and they're buying them up because of their patents that they acquire and they string them together. And the consequence is they turn those patents into a billionaire, billion dollar, you know, flow every few months. Mm -hmm. And this isn't a free market. If you had a free market economy, then we could discuss something different. But this is fundamentally the most unfree system you could imagine. And huge subsidies go from governments to particular sectors and particular interests, particularly to finance. Finance has been taking over the world. And I've got a new book coming out tomorrow, as it happens, which is about how how rentier capitalism has captured the sea. It's called Mm. the Blue Commons, Rescuing the Economy of the Sea, because what we've seen is big finance moving into not only fisheries, but marine species, into buying up uh, the seabed around the world and turning them into profits for a monopoly. Wow. Okay. Again, it's not capital. It's not a free market system. And, and it's, what's happening is you're destroying the commons and creating growing inequalities that are unsustainable. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important for our narrative to understand what the nature of the enemy is. And it's not free marketed capitalism. You get my point? Yeah, mm-hmm. I absolutely do. Yeah, I've never really thought about it. I've never thought about it that way. I've really thought of free market capitalism in the way of, in the way of increased regulation versus versus less or no Listen, we have more regulations now than at any time in history, believe me. Mm. <laughs> it's just a different type of regulation. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you know, you, you have you have regulation protecting multinationals against governments introducing uh environmental reforms, for example. Okay. That's regulation. But it happens to be regulation in favor of multinational corporations. Okay. Yeah, right. mm. There are fewer regulations protecting workers than there used to be. Uh, but that's that's not the only form of regulation. And we have, I mean, as I show in the books, there are thousands of regulations that have been introduced in favor of monopolists and the wealthy. Mm-hmm. But uh, they don't 
they don't get counted so much. So, so where does so where does basic income what 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 role does basic income play in 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 solving in starting to solve this gigantic global impossible problem? seeming problem? Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Okay, let me first of all for the, your listeners define what I mean by basic income yes, because please. there's a lot of misunderstanding yeah. about what it is. Yeah. And a basic income would be a situation where every individual, as an individual, man or woman, would receive each month a modest amount paid from the state, paid unconditionally. In other words, they don't have to behave in a particular way in order to qualify to get it. And it would be a modest amount as an economic right. It's not determined by your income or anything like that. You could introduce tax on the wealthy so that they don't benefit more, but in principle, everybody would be entitled to that basic income. And the reasons that I've given in my books and in my talks over the years uh, are fundamentally ethical. We, the justification for a basic income is not a matter of instrumental dealing with poverty, although it does that, mm -hmm. but fundamentally an ethical foundation of a good society. And the first ethical reason is it's a matter of common justice. The income and wealth of every single one of us is far more to do with the efforts and achievements of the many generations who've come before us than anything you or I do ourselves. Even a Warren Buffett admits that. And that means that we owe it to those who came before us, but we don't know whose ancestors contributed more or less of to the public wealth. So in a sense, you could see a basic income as a social dividend, a property right, if you like, on our public commons generated in the past. If you're religious, I'm not religious, but if you are religious, it's also a matter of religious justice. And I'm very pleased that the Pope last year during the pandemic has come out in favor of basic income. And I've been consulted, I'm very honored to be consulted by uh, the Catholic Commission dealing with this. And his justification is perfectly sensible in the sense that God has given us unequal talents and unequal abilities and unequal mental capacities, right? But in a sense, a basic income is compensating those who don't have the abilities to make a lot of money mm. or, or whatever, right? So I think that's right. It's also a, a matter of ecological justice. Most of the pollution in the world is caused by the rich. They have the private planes, they go frequent flying, they do this, that, and the other. They cause the pollution, most of the pollution. But the poor pay a price in mm. affecting their health, affecting cancers, affecting their living standards, and so on. And in a sense, capturing the income that they are using up, polluting, and recycling in the form of common dividends in form of a basic income is a matter of ecological justice. The second reason is that it would enhance freedom. Those on the right and those on the left have talked a lot about freedom, but they don't actually practice it except for themselves if they're privileged. Freedom, it comes in three forms. First, is the libertarian freedom. That's the sort of freedom associated with the, far, with the right. It's the freedom to make choices. Now, you can't make choices if you're chronically insecure. That's why Milton Friedman joined our network several years before he died, because he understood that. You can't have a free market economy unless people can be rational and make choices, right? It's just, that's common sense. The second form of freedom is liberal freedom. And what that means is the freedom to be moral. The freedom to be moral is the freedom 
to be able to make moral choices because I think it's right. But if you're chronically insecure, you can't do that. You just have to do whatever is necessary to get by. Mm-hmm. You can't be moral. You just have to survive, right? It's, it's pretty obvious, but it's important. And the third form of freedom is Republican freedom, what we call Republican freedom with a small arm. And Republican freedom is the freedom from potential domination by figures in unaccountable positions of power over you. And that, I think, people with disabilities, people in vulnerable positions, women in particular, can understand because that freedom is vital. And among the findings we've had from our basic income pilots, and perhaps we'll discuss those in a minute, is the fact that many cases where women have been in abusive relationships, once they have a basic income, they have the confidence and the material resources to be able to walk out of those abusive relationships. Mm -hmm. And that is a vital freedom. So for me, freedom is vital. And the final ethical justification is it would give people basic security. Basic security, not total security. And we need basic security. Anybody who's been insecure for any period of their life knows what psychologists have taught us. Your mental bandwidth shrinks. You become less intelligent, less capable of making good decisions if you're chronically insecure. But if you have basic security, the opposite happens. Mm -hmm. You get a feeling of de-stressed. You get a feeling of being in control to a greater extent. You feel a sense of solidarity, of altruism, of tolerance towards other people. And the findings are pretty strong in in that regard. So those ethical reasons are the reasons I support a basic income. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts so in terms because that sounds that sounds amazing and it sounds it sounds i'm sure there's a lot of people listening that are like that that's like an idealist version of what life could be like this seems to make the situation work for everybody but then you know for me without a background in economics i'm like whoa what that sounds like a lot of money though like giving people a basic income that like who how do we fund this like is this feasible what do we do we cause hyperinflation by doing this? But again, like I'm not an economist and you are, thankfully. So <laughs> I'm curious, like there's a lot of I, I feel like the critics are very strong, strongly opposed to um, basic income. But like, why? Like, does it not does the do the economics work? Well, um, is this something I've discussed at, at length in all the books, there are different ways of funding uh, a basic income system. First of all, let me say that that no sensible advocate believes a basic income is a panacea, solving all your social problems, or is a sing- you know, you don't play a game of golf with just one club. Mm-hmm. It's got to be seen in, in a package or mm-hmm. a strategy. The If you had taken the financial crash of 2008, and you took the money that the Fed spent on propping up the banks, you could have given every American a very substantial basic income. Mm -hmm. The same in the UK, the same across Europe, okay? During the COVID pandemic, governments spent billions and billions. Trillions. Again, distributed mainly to help prop up the banks, major corporations, etc. If they'd used just part of that money to give everybody a basic income, they could have given 500 more dollars 
a month to every American. They now, did the stimulus package actually moved in that direction. Right. And then Biden lost his nerve. Um, the same in Britain and, and in, in Europe. But more importantly, I would say what we've got to do is realize that our commons have been taken from us. Our collective public wealth, our land, our water, our sea, our amenities have been taken and turned into the source of profit. And if you actually took part of the income that the people have made from doing that and put it into a fund and built up the fund, you could start paying out a rising amount as a basic income. Now, as it happens, the Alaska Permanent Fund, which was set up in 1976 and became operational in 1982, for many years was doing that. It took the royalties from oil, put it into the fund, built it up, so every Alaskan receives every year a growing amount. Unfortunately, the Republican administration in Alaska used it to cut uh, income tax to zero. And then when they had a budget crisis, they raided the fund for current expenditure. So they ruined the principle. But other countries have been moving in this direction. So gradually, you build that fund up and you can pay out. Mm -hmm. And what has happened in the United States and in other countries is the value of inherited wealth has grown relative to income, to GDP. And it's grown enormously. And we don't tax wealth. It's ridiculous. We hardly tax wealth at all. And if it was taxed just half as much as income, we will have plenty and to enable us to pay out a rising basic income. So I don't think the affordability is actually beyond our imagination. It's not idealistic or anything like that. So what about the people who say that a basic income will will um, demotivate people and make people more lazy? I know that you have a lot of interesting, I know that you've done some pilot um, programs. Do you Ooh. want to talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I mean, you're... you're you're listening to a man who's had a very strange habit of designing and implementing basic income pilots around the world <laughs> uh, over the last 20 plus years. And so I've, I've, I've got more than a few scars from the difficulty of, of operationalizing it in Africa or in India or elsewhere. And what, what, I'm interested in, and I'm advising the Welsh government on a pilot at the moment for for, for care leavers, uh, I'm advising the Barcelona uh, government on a, a basic income pilot, and we're doing one in Nepal. Um, and, and I've been involved in Canada and, and in California and, and, and elsewhere. And there are more than 100 basic income type experiments going on at this moment. Mm. Okay. And one thing I've noticed, and I've record, put all the data and you know, all the details in, in my books, is there are certain findings that are consistent with every type of basic income pilot. And one of them is that it re results in a reduction of stress, an improvement in mental health, an improvement in physical health. A pilot in Manitoba in Canada resulted in an 8% drop in hospitalizations during the course of the, of the pilot. Wow. Uh, our pilot in India resulted in huge improvements in health and health care. So it enabled people to have more energy, more confidence, and so on. The second thing, and this relates to your question, is that in every pilot, that I've seen and examined with the data have shown, and listen very carefully to this, has shown that work has increased, mm. not decreased. I'll repeat it just in case some listener refuses to believe this. It's resulted in work increasing, not decreasing, and work being more productive. 
mm. more collaborative often. And people who have more confidence and more security and more energy, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and, and it's not, we want to work. We want to improve the lives of our families, our children, our friends, our community. We're, we're that sort of species. And to give person a basic income, they'll still want to improve their life from that point. If, if a basic income was to result in idleness, why don't we take all the money away from Jeff Bezos and all the others? Because clearly they have much more than a basic income. And if the basic income makes you lazy, why aren't they lazy? We'd be much better off if some of them were, but but you know what I'm saying. Mm. I'm saying this is this is an argument that's used against the poor, whereas the wealthy have much more than a basic income, but I don't notice them becoming super lazy. It's mm. it's prejudice, that is. Prejudice. <laughs> And again, it, it comes back to your the prejudice is being disproved by the yeah. pilot. Yeah, I, I was going to say it comes back to your point of like, you know, we, if we implement something like basic income, it it relieves stress. You know, it, it relieves a ton of different stressors on your life. And if you ever think about the times in your life when it comes to you and your work or you and your creativity, whatever it might be, you know, when you're when you're going through a stressful um, period in your life for myself personally, like those are the times where I find it the hardest to get up and do the things that I know that I need to do to provide for myself and for Absolutely. my family. And to and think about other people. Yes, exactly. I'm only have, thinking about me. Yeah, it, exactly. It comes down yourself. to that survival mechanism, right? Yeah. And so when you have that, when you have that stress lifted from you, like you said, more energy, more opportunity to be creative, more opportunity to be, you know, excited about the things that you want to do. And so it, it, it totally makes sense to me that, um, that you know something like basic income would would actually uplift society to be more productive and and really show up for the people around them. Um, this is a this is a question that I that I popped into my head uh, while I was listening to your talk earlier today and 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 came up for me again when you were explaining um, just a few minutes ago about um, about um, you know some of the cr- uh, just responding to some of like the critical. Uh, the critical things that critics say about basic income, about you know why it could be a bad thing, inflation, blah blah blah, blah whatever the whatever the, the the critical aspects are, critical points are, and is it um, is it sort of like in the in the sense that uh, you know if you are an investor in a company and you want to uh, and, and and you know your 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 hope as an investor in that company is that the the uh, is that profits will rise. Maybe your dividend goes up, uh, or the share price goes up because of that, and you know you, you, you're creating wealth that that way. Um, and that if and, and that you would m- maybe not want that company to increase the wages of the employees. And I'm sort of sort of likening the increase in the wage of an employee of an employee to uh, the government extending a basic income. Sort of a drawing that parallel. Um, and I, I, I was thinking of this that. If the wages increase dramatically, where profits are reduced but wages are increased across the board for all employees of like a multinational company like a Google or something like that, is that from an from an economics standpoint, is that is the theory that that would then result in further um, in further production for those companies? Like pr- those companies would be more productive because the wages would increase such that more money would be spent like it's an economic for the economy like the market economy that that would be a net positive for wages to be dramatically increased and profits to be reduced that that would ultimately flow back up to profits for companies well i mean that there there's there've been a lot of arguments over the years about the points you've made among economists and that's why the the subject of a minimum wage is so controversial to a sense, uh, uh, a rising wage uh, can have beneficial effects in the sense of stimulating productivity and therefore increasing the profitability of the production process. But it can also squeeze costs and reduce profits. I mean, you, you know, that, that can happen. Um, I think what we're dealing with, though, is a, a world system a global economy 
where I think wages in the United States or in Britain or anywhere in the OECD countries, the industrialized countries, are very unlikely to rise by very much in the next decade, just as they haven't risen in the past three decades, not mm -hmm. just the past decade. If real wages in terms of purchasing have been stagnant. And the reason, basically, there are two reasons. One is globalization. So a, a corporation can shift production to a low-income country with the drop of a pen or just marginally increase their production in one factory in, in, that they've got in India, another one in Bangladesh, another one in the Philippines, or whatever it might be. And we exist in a globalized system. And until the wage the real wages of countries like India with over 1 billion people or China with well over 1 billion people rise to anything like the level of the United States or Britain, there's going to be downward pressure on wages. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that benefits corporate profits because they're using production processes that generate. That's why profits have risen dramatically compared with the past. And automation is also playing its part. The technological change is disruptive, but increasing inequalities. And this is one of the reasons why I've argued that it's our income distribution system as such has broken down. In the old days, you could have the unions bargaining for improvement in wages, and it was a matter of the share. Okay, between the, the capitalist and the, and the workers, right? If they do that today, then the, the, the employer can smile and say, okay, Jim, uh, thank you very much, and merely shift part of his production to somewhere else, okay? Mm -hmm. And everybody knows that. Now, I'm in favor of unions, so don't get me wrong. I believe that people have to have a collective representation because we're all vulnerable. We're all vulnerable. We need collective voice, okay? But I don't think that they can really uh, achieve a great deal. In the global if you sense. Accept that, if you accept that logic roughly, you don't have to accept it 100%, but if you accept that logically roughly, then you can say, well, okay, they're making super profits, which I call rents, which are well above what they used to get, but it's unfair on everybody who's down below, who's not sharing in that increase. And therefore we need to have mechanisms which recycle the rental income to enable everybody in society to gain part of the increase in productivity or whatever it might be. And that I think is, a, is another ethical reason for having a basic income. Because you're not going to raise living standards by the old ways. The AFLO, CIO may get more militant and, you know, more charismatic leadership, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but they can huff and puff, but they won't pull, push the walls down, uh, even though I would support them pushing and huffing and puffing. <laughs> but, but we need to change the system. Mm. I'm uh, I'm 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 hearing some a thought that's kind of been swirling in my head through the whole conversation is um, – is uh, a few years ago, oh, this would have been maybe 2015 or something like that. I went to a, uh, I went to a, uh, a, sh a, a show here in, in Halifax uh, by David Suzuki. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with David Suzuki at all. He's a, um, a Canadian, um, um, what would he be, a naturalist or an environmentalist? environmentalist? Yeah. environmentalist. Um, and, he's, uh, and, and it was called the Blue, <laughs> it was called the Blue Dot Tour. And he was, he was touring Canada on this show as a way to gain uh, like kind of grassroots support in, in communities across Canada to, to include the right to clean air in the charter of rights and freedoms in Canada. And, uh, and I'm sort of hearing, I'm, I'm sort of kind of st starting to think about how this, the idea of money, like in the, in the global structure that we have created in terms of how money is, is, you know, you've got a company that's 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 in America or Canada or what, whatever whatever country, but they're operational in every in every country in the world, basically. And there, a lot of their workforce is totally outsourced to another country where where wages can be um, can be paid at a very low rate. Um, that money, we kind of need to start thinking of money as a right, like a, 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 and and include it in 
sort of something like the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, where where we've created a we've created a world in which if you do not have a certain amount, like cat, cat, catastrophe reigns on your on your existence, mm-hmm. and that maybe we need to start thinking about money in a different way, where it's not something that you earn because you've done something for it. And I know that that's got a lot of holes in it, just that one sentence, but that it's something that is deserved mm-hmm. to, a cer- to a certain extent because of the world that we've, like the structure that we've created financially mm-hmm. in the world. Well, there's enough to go around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just, it just doesn't go around. That's the yeah. trouble. Yeah, that's the problem. It just that's, doesn't yeah. go but around. But that is universal basic let me, let, me take up, let me take up Suzuki's points uh, in the way I've done it in this this, this new book, The Blue Commons, um, we have a right to the commons, and the commons includes clean air. It includes access to the waters of the world, the oceans of the world, which are being plundered by financial capital making short-term profit maximization at the cost of depleting the fish populations, the marine species, and a lot of other things. Now, you go from that sort of thesis and you say, well, the people who are doing the pollution are effectively denying us our commons, our clean air, our clean water, or whatever it is. And therefore, we demand compensation from them. Now, there you go from that, and I've listed a number of ways you can put that into practical effect without sounding like a revolutionary, you know, about to throw uh, cocktails or whatever. And, and I basically say, start with carbon tax. Okay. We need, if we're going to have any chance of dealing with the threat of global warming, we need a carbon tax, a high carbon tax. Because we've got to discourage people from consuming fossil fuels and creating, generating greenhouse gas emissions. And we're not doing nearly enough. But there are two problems with it. One is that it's not popular because it sounds like extra tax. And two is it's regressive. In other words, a poor person would be paying more proportionately than a rich person if you had a carbon tax. And the only way to get around both of those problems is to promise that when you generate the revenue from the carbon tax, it will be recycled to help pay for a basic income. Mm. Is there not also now, that's a, what they've uh, done in Switzerland and it's very popular. Mm. Is there not also an issue? I think this is, I, I don't know if they're doing this in other countries, but I believe this is how it works in the States where basically if you are a, if you're a good company, meaning in this context, that you produce under a certain amount of CO2 emissions per year, you are, you are given credits. Yeah. And a company that produces more than what is deemed okay, carbon emissions-wise, can, can buy, buy credits, credits yeah. from companies yeah. that produce less and go, we're good. That's fucking dumb. That's Which, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, so they still, they remain polluters. They remain right. polluters because they, they, they get round it. And there are all sorts of accounting tricks that they can yeah. do. The only way is to be direct about it so that it's transparent and clear. And um, it actually becomes a generalized system where we must all be encouraged to reduce our contribution to global warming and pollution and the extinction of species and so on. And there are various ways of, that, that can be done. and. I've proposed a series of things which would be put into this fund and built up through investments from the capital fund in in thrivable industries that are ecologically desirable and are contributing to standards of living. And then you distribute the dividends as a form of basic income. And you can fund that very easily at the same time as you're tackling the ecological crisis, which is the biggest crisis in the world today. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's a matter of, of thinking out of the box, thinking imaginatively, and then mobilizing particularly young people with all the energy, young people who are going into politics and going into NGOs and civil society 
to, to fight for those things because they're very practical. It's a matter of whether we have the courage to put pressure on the politicians and bring our collective pressure to bear in society and stand up for those things, mm. stand up for those things. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what is happening slowly, you know, it's mm. happening. Guy, I got to say, this has been uh, quite an eye-opening conversation and uh, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you very much for that. Um, I know that you've written uh, many books uh, and, and I'm sure that there's at least a few listeners out there who would be very interested in taking a bit of a deeper dive into your work. So where can people find you? Where can people find your, your, uh, your books um, and sort of stay up to date with the work that you're doing? Well, they, they can go on my webpage, Guy Standing, and my books have all been published by mainstream uh, publishers. The new one is, is published by Pelican, Penguin, which is Britain's biggest publisher. Mm -hmm. uh, the good, a good thing about my books, I've always insisted that they're at a price that, that, that ordinary people can afford. So, for example, my book on basic income, which goes through all the arguments, is is nine pounds uh, and you get it if you get it on amazon or online it's less than that uh sort of twelve dollars or something like that so and and the and the precariat has just come out is as a fifth edition um Ooh. in english and it exists in as i said earlier 24 other languages so um you it's accessible mm -hmm. um that one of the things as an author, you never know how many people are actually reading your work. But uh, I must say I've been hugely uh, encouraged and motivated by the emails I receive from uh, an incredible diversity of, of people. Mm. And many, uh, many people who understand the precariat and understand basic income intuitively have certain mental problems or disabilities, physical problems, like most of us have, believe it or not, and who, who want a different type of life from the one that they're struggling to deal with. Mm. And I, I believe that we must be optimistic and really feel encouraged by the energy out there. And the energy since the COVID, I think, has made many people wake up and say, we can have a better society. Mm -hmm. We can uh, change things. We don't have to put up with the cynicism of those old politicians uh, who have led us astray for the last 40 years or more. We can actually change things. And I think that energy is is what we have to encourage. Mm -hmm. I, I want to say, I think you you've inspired me to mm -hmm. invest my energy into um advocating for for this because i i yeah as, as, ever since reading about your work and learning about your work i've i've been really inspired um to take action and and want to make a difference when it comes to this and believe that it's possible and so i think it's something that's that. uh i think it's and i i get the sense that it's something that is it's it's in the news it's more achievable. and more regularly mm -hmm. it's getting a lot of it's. I think. I think the. I think the general um, support and understanding of basic income is is rising. Mm -hmm. um, it certainly has in my sphere, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I've and I, uh, I. The more the more I the more I hear about it, the more I think about it, the more I talk to people about it that really get it and and explain to me more about it. Uh, the more the more sense it it makes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Guy, thank you for this. Uh, on behalf of myself, the guys, and all of our listeners, this has been a real treat. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. 
The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sipcoin. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.